Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to January's Movies Podcast. Coming up, we look back at the best of 2011. And welcome to the Movies Podcast. Happy New Year. It is the 7th of January if you're tuning in to us on release day and uh, all the team are here because we're going to go back over 2011. And in this edition of the podcast, the guys are going to pick their personal favourites from the past year. That's on Blu-ray discs, so their favourite films, favourite transfers, sound, all that kind of thing. We're going to cover that tonight and, uh, well, why not kick off straight away by welcoming the guys tonight. So we got Chris McAnini, Kaz Harlow, Mark Botwright, Simon Crust, and Steve Withers. Good evening, guys. Hello. Hello. So I guess the, the easiest way of doing this is to go around everybody, ask uh, what the favourite films are of the year or what the top fives are, uh, their personal favourites, and then we'll discuss them in a little bit more detail. So uh, let's start with Simon. Simon, what are your favourites? I'm slightly different. I, I've, I've chosen uh, the top five 3D discs because that's pretty much what I exclusively deal with nowadays. Um, so I'll just I'll dive straight into them. I mean, I'd like to uh, talk about some honourable mentions, but I think we'll leave that till later. Um, the top five I've picked from throughout the year, so I start right at the beginning of the year, January, right up to the end of December. Um, I'll dive straight in. First pick, number five, was Coraline, right at the very beginning of the year. My... Fourth choice would be Despicable Me. That was, again, um, right at the beginning of the year. My third choice is A Convert, believe it or not, which is Beauty and the Beast, which I very much enjoyed. My second choice, um, I've been unable to split these up. This is the Toy Story trilogy that I've put in as uh, my second choice. And my choice of the year, number one, is the How to Train Your Dragon, which has only just been released as as we are recording this, which... um, I have watched the most out of all the 3D discs that I've bought, that I've reviewed throughout the year. So that is why I picked that one as my first. Okay, so, I mean, when we're talking about 3D films, we're not necessarily talking about the quality of the films, <laughs> are we? Well, that's, yeah, it's very, very difficult to, to pick because I've done something like 38 to 40 reviews, 3D discs that have been released throughout the year. Um, quality and the quantity simply isn't there. Um, and my decision process was, what have I watched the most out of everything that I've reviewed? I mean, if I could, I mean, honourable mentions would be something like uh, Cars 2, which was fabulous 3D, but a terrible film. So I couldn't put that in a top five. Pirates of the Caribbean 4, again, fabulous 3D, but I didn't really enjoy the film, so I'm not going to be really watching it. Sanctum, 3D, great, but I didn't really enjoy the film. Tron, Different way around, fabulous film, really enjoyed it, but the 3D was a bit crap. So the choice is <laughs> somewhat limited. So um, my top choice, How to Stream Dragon, is a fabulous film. I really, really enjoy it, and the 3D is spectacular. So for me, it was a no-brainer. I had to go number one. Okay, so that's uh, Simon's top five. We'll come back to them, no doubt, uh, a little bit later on in the podcast. We'll move over to Chris. Uh, what were yours? 
Ooh, well, once again, going through all the releases and did I love this? Did I like that more than this? Did it, oh, it's very difficult. So, I mean, I've plumped for a couple of really obvious things and then, you know, a couple of obviously personal favourites. So there's going to be, this is in no particular order, really, to be honest, but Evil Dead 2, an absolute classic horror, horror comedy, love it to bits. Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, brand new onto, onto Blu-ray, but great movie and great transfer. Island of Lost Souls from Criterion. Um, always, I couldn't wait for this movie to arrive on Blu-ray, and it didn't disappoint. Lord of the Rings, you know, Obviously, it's got some issues there, but, you know, the films are absolute magnificence, and that's one of the ultimate box sets for everything all round. The Coen Brothers, True Grit, awesome, awesome movie. There you go. Satya 5? I think that was 5. Yeah, it was 5. <laughs> I'm counting Lord of the Rings as one, one release. <laughs> yeah, like I counted the Toy Stories as one. <laughs> Ex- exactly. Absolutely. Okay, so we're only two minutes in, cheating already. Uh, we'll move over to Mark. Uh, i got a feeling this is going to have a bit of an Asian flavour to it. Mark, what are your top fives? How dare you, Phil? Um, well, in no particular order, uh, Taxi Driver. Uh, again, I'm, I'm tending to go for the, the films that I desperately wanted to see, get the treatment they deserve on, on Blu-ray, and the ones that I tend to watch the most. So Taxi Driver, 13 Assassins, um, so already got a bit of a Japanese feel to it. Um, Harakiri, um, the Criterion, Kiss Me Deadly, and I, I couldn't help but sneak in the UK steelbook of Akira. Not Shogun Assassin. Wow. Wasn't out <laughs> we this year. for that one. <laughs> I, I, I double-checked the release date. I, I was hoping. <laughs> I checked to see whether it had been released in any other regions as well, and unfortunately uh. not. <laughs> Okay, uh, so we'll move on to Steve. Steve, what were yours? Yeah, much like Simon, um, I'm just doing 3D Blu-rays because that's what I've been reviewing, although some of the, my choices aren't ones I actually reviewed. Um, for me, it's uh, in no particular order, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, the Toy Story box set, so one, two, and three. Same as um, same as Simon, I'm counting that as one choice rather than three. Drive Angry, which I know everyone else didn't like, but uh, I really enjoyed and um, and for a sort of token conversion that worked, The Lion King. Okay, some interesting choices there. And finally, we'll move over to Kaz. Kaz, what were your five for the year? Right, so uh, I went with a, another mixed bag, but some of them pretty obvious ones. The ones that have been covered already, I've got, of course, Lord of the Rings. Um, it's just, it's got to be in there. I can't not put it in there. And uh, Three Colours Trilogy was a recent one I covered. That's my favourite of the Criterion releases I covered this year. A Touch of Evil is probably one of the most lovingly produced releases that I've come across. Uh, Tron Legacy was favourite video and audio presentation. Most enjoyable experience. Manhunter it just had to go in there, even though it's got loads of criticisms on its release. Uh, I just love the movie that much. So, guys, uh, the the theme there uh, for one of the popular box sets this year seems to be the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition. Uh, so, Chris, why did you pick that one? It's quite simple. Uh, the films are magisterial. I love them to bits. Uh, I'm instantly transfor- transformed. I'm instantly transported to Middle Earth when I put them on. I couldn't wait to get them in their extended versions on Blu-ray. And I think in a weird sort of perverse way, I'm kind of pleased there was some kind of controversy around them as well. Um, 
I don't know why, but a bit of, you know, they weren't perfect. The green tint, I don't know what what was going on there. But we discussed that before. And But basically, the films are all sheer magnificence. And I could never, never tire of watching them. Part of me kind of dreaded watching them and reviewing them because, as I think I've said before, it's some some, some personal sort of exorcism if you... Uh, really go in depth about a film you, you totally have devoted a large portion of your life to, i.e. collecting stuff and writing about, listening to the soundtracks, watching the films over and over again, to finally write at length about it, sort of remove some of the, your own personal magic and affection for it. And I dreaded doing it, but covering it for the site, it, I didn't lose anything at all. In fact, it just really enhanced my love for the, uh, the trilogy. Um, they're just great movies, all around. And you know, soundtrack's fantastic. Uh, the audio mix is superb. Picture mostly is fantastic, apart from the yeah, the green tint um, and the extras. God, well, what more could you ask for? That's probably one one of the most comprehensive packages going. I'm a massive fan of commentary tracks, and this just has almost everybody speaks on these, and it's just, I just love them, love them to bits. And I'm sure most of you feel roughly the same way. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a comprehensive package to begin with, but by adding in the Custer Boats documentaries as well, I mean, it is everything you could ever want, uh, bar a few things like maybe some more deleted scenes. But yeah, I mean, for a, a stopgap release until the inevitable ultimate box set post The Hobbit, uh, it was superb. Yeah, yeah, you just, you just couldn't go wrong with it. It was, uh, as I say, you know, controversy aside, what more could you ask for? It was, this was a year of big box sets, wasn't it? You know, um, you had Star Wars, you had Superman as well, uh, all of which proved contentious at some point. But Lord of the Rings, possibly, uh, there was something about that which really hit a, hit a nerve with a lot of people. Um, and I think it's because the films are so highly cherished that you just wanted perfection. It simply wasn't going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think you got as near as you possibly could do without some, uh, without going back in time and doing them all over again. So... Yeah, it's one. It's it's on a, you know, a cherished position on the shelf. That one. I, I must be one of a very small minority because Lord of the Rings. I've just never gotten into it, um, and I, I I certainly don't feel the same way as you guys do about it. good films. But I've never really gotten it. If you know what I mean. No, I'm it's... I'm pretty much the same. You know, I, I hear people talk about kind of how magical it is, and I, I just I don't quite see it. I see a, a you know. A very slick and well-made kind of fantasy film, but I don't know whether some people perhaps read Tolkien at a particular age, and therefore it, you know, they always wanted to see that on the big screen. But that just was never really the case for me. Well, I, I'm probably different again because you know I read the books. I struggled with the books to be honest several times throughout my life, and uh, I could read. By the way, it's just <laughs> Tolkien's <laughs> prose style was yeah, and Tom, and bloody Tom Bombadil. Thank God he wasn't in the movies at all. Um, but it, it's one of the rare occasions where I thought the film, like Jaws, was better than the book. Oh, you know, you know, pitchforks at yeah, the red. I, I totally agree with you, Chris. I think that they did a brilliant job of adapting those books. I think, You've for got example, the it, for example, um, Boromir dies effectively off-screen, if you like, on the book. You don't he, they yeah. find his body, you know. Whereas they got this, and it's at the beginning of the Two Towers that he dies, where clearly it makes a superb ending for the first film, a lovely, really emotional scene with his death scene with um, with um, Aragorn. Um, yeah. it, the adaptation is is absolutely brilliant, and people, uh, purists will go, "Oh, he took liberties," but that's the whole point of an adaptation. You what to. you don't want is a slave. I mean, look at some of the early Potter films. 
They just slavishly followed the books and they were boring because of it. Whereas Alfonso Cuaron basically made a film of Prisoner of Azkaban. He, you know, was very liberal with the adaptation and it's by far and away the best Potter movie for that reason. And that's why the Lord of the Rings works as cinematic achievements because Jackson and the other writers, uh, Philippa Boyens and, um, and uh, Fran Walsh, you know, did a great job at taking the books and making them into movies and not just slavishly following them, cutting out the stuff that was obviously crap like Tom Bombadil, um, cutting out extraneous characters, you know, and moving things around. But I mean, it was all done for a reason, which was to drive the story. Uh, and I think they did an absolutely brilliant job and they deserve their Oscars. Now, that's what I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> it is. As ad- adaptations go, that is what, that is purely genius, isn't it? You know, you took a weighty collection of tomes, which are, you know, totally legendary, but they're not very filmic. You think they would be, but the way they're written, they're not like that. The narrative doesn't flow. Yeah, if you read The Two well. Towers, it's two separate stories and they're told completely separately. Yeah. Obviously, you know, in a movie, you need to intertwine them. They do a pretty good job of intertwining the two stories because for long periods, you know, they've got different groups of characters separated. So you've got the uh, Merry and Pippin with the Ents. You've got uh, the, the rest of them stuck at uh, Helm's Deep and obviously um, Frodo and Sam on their way to Mordor with, um, uh, with Gollum. Yeah. But yeah, I think they did a fantastic job, absolutely fantastic. And they also did brought things in from other parts of the from the from the appendices and that sort of stuff. There's an absolutely beautiful scene where uh, where um, Arwen's talking to um, um, who's the guy from Rivendell? I forgot his name. Uh, <laughs> Not a dad. Yeah, yeah, a dad. What's his name? I can't remember. <laughs> I forgot. El- Elrond, didn't it? Elrond. Yeah, yeah. So Arwen's talking to Elrond. Agent, Agent Smith. And he's yeah. <laughs> And he's talking to her about, you know, what 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 does she hope is going to happen when she if she marries Aragorn, you know, and all of her dreams come true. He's still going to die because he's a man, and you'll be left, you know, for the, till the rest of your lives are utterly spent. Absolutely beautiful poetic writing, which is taken yeah. from Tolkien. But in other words, the film itself moves you in a way that the book struggled to do. You know, you love the story, you love the characters, but you you weren't emotionally engaged. I don't think to any of them. It was just it was just an epic fantasy story, but it lacked the, the humanity which you know which Jackson and his, his eclectic right. cast put into it. It grounds it in reality uh, to a degree. Obviously, there's a certain amount of fantasy in it, but uh, it grounds it in reality and it makes you care about the characters and it makes them you know human and and therefore you you know you, you're you're moved by their their struggle, by their pain, their suffering, happiness, and, and you you buy into it completely. I didn't. Um, <laughs> that? I didn't. I, you I, didn't. I, I thought you it got, was. You've got no soul, Phil. Well, well, no, I, I just they did, were, they did were not find darker it. than I thought they were going to be, which was I thought was a, a tremendous aspect. It didn't, it didn't go down the um, please the kids sort of aspect. It wasn't. There was a fair bit of you know, you know gaiety and frivolity when he got to Hobbiton and the Shire and all that, but it did not shy away from um, the dark side of things, the pain, the agony, as you just said, and the violence. You know, it, and the creations of like like Lerts, for example, you've actually had a villain in the first movie, a physical villain, which you could have a, you know, a one, one-on-one skirmish with. Yeah. It's something that the, the book denied you a lot of the way through. You didn't have, you know, all these villains. It was just a lot more, a lot more. There was indulgence in some places, the Frodo and Sam aspect, the homoerotic side of it, which is far too easy to pick apart and to mock. Uh, and I, I'm the first to admit that I've done a, pl- a fair bit of that. And even watching the films now, I will possibly razz through some of those bits with those two <laughs> and, get, and get to the action. But, you know, and I still believe that he should have given the, um, the ring to the Eagles and just sent them over. Would have cut out a lot of suffering, I think. But, hey, <laughs> it's the magic of fantasy. Well, you see, 
listening to you two talking there, I don't know how Mark feels, but I just couldn't get into the characters. I, I didn't have any connect with them. Um, and uh, I, I really struggled with fellowship. Uh, in fact, I, I thought it was so boring in the cinema, I walked out about three quarters of the way through. Uh, I just didn't get it. I, I've watched it again since, and um, they are very well-made films. Uh, you could say it's well-written, technically brilliant in terms of um, how it's been filmed and the sound mix and so on, but it doesn't have you any just, soul for me. Them, yeah, yeah it, it doesn't have any soul for me, and, it, and I, I didn't have any need um, to get entrenched in that universe. I, I, I didn't find it appealing. I don't know how Mark feels about that. Well, see, I usually quite like a, a kind of fancy epic type film, but I, I don't know, there's, there's something whether it felt a little bit too slick and so therefore it did feel a little bit soulless to me or, or what it was but I just it never really got its hooks into me you know maybe again I, I come back to you know I've, I've never even really tried to read Tolkien I you know I look at the kind of made up language and I just can't really get on with it um, and and the but the whole kind of premise as soon as the ring I, I never really felt it was explained and it, there's a lot kind of riding on almost it, it felt a little bit like a kind of in joke a little something that everyone knew about but i didn't you know i i i didn't really care about these characters before i you know the credits started rolling and i wasn't bothered about it afterwards so was it was it a colder film than you thought a colder story you couldn't um you know connect with these characters is it because no. it felt too dark no it, unlike, it, unlike say, any- star wars which is a lot lighter and far more comic book um, but it's certainly it's it's no more believable, and you know the characters don't make any sense in any any real dramatic sort of sense. But uh, you know, but everyone loves Han Solo, everyone loves Luke Skywalker, and all this. So, and I presume you know, Phil, I know you're, you you love Star Wars, so no, what's the difference? Com- completely different films, and and I certainly wouldn't compare them. Um, for me, I think Mark hit on a a, a good point there when he said about the in-joke and, and that he felt that uh, he had to have some knowledge of the universe to start with. And and that's how I certainly felt. Um, I felt I was coming from a place where I didn't know these characters and there was nothing in Fellowship that made me care about them. Well, maybe you should try harder next time with the heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with opposing viewpoints, especially when it comes to uh, films like Lord of the Rings. We haven't heard from Cars. Cars, what's your thoughts on that? Cass is phoning in from Mordor. <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, to be fair, Chris pretty much covered the base on this one. I, I, I can't, I can't really. Uh, I don't really want to offer opposing views to um, to you and Mark over this because I know everybody's got their own tastes, and uh, you know, Lord of the Rings isn't without its flaws, but there, there is a, a charm to it which hit me, and. You know they are great movies, um, so I, you know, I can't I can't fault this release for releasing three brilliant movies in near perfect shape, uh, despite the ongoing controversy over it, and um, and I'm sorry that some people don't quite get into it, and I, I you know I sympathise with that. I've never you know never got on the Harry Potter bandwagon. Uh, I happen to think that Lord of the Rings completely blows Harry Potter out of the water, but I haven't even seen them, so uh, I don't really know how I'm qualified to make that assessment. And you love Twilight. 
Spoken like a true lawyer there. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely hate Twilight. Yeah, with a with a passion. It's it's already, a good point. I think we must surely all gen- agree on that one. Yeah, yeah get, already getting angry at the thought of it. You know. <laughs> they, they could they, they do they do these games where you can shoot zombies with shotguns, and if they could if you could shoot like emo kids watching Twilight movies <laughs> with shotguns, it'd be great. It'd be really good in the rain. You know, make it like an emo video game. Uh, so, so the only voice we haven't heard uh, up to this point is Simon. So, Simon, uh, what's your thoughts on this? What, what else can I say? It's all been said. Um, I, I side with with Chris more than. I all right, with then. You, thanks so. very much. Um, moving on. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> no, go Talk on, Simon. Go Talk on. About the battles. <laughs> Talk about the battles. <laughs> okay. Um, there's lots of swords. Uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's our first choice, 2011. Um, well, certainly for uh, one, two, three, four, four against two uh, for Lord of the Rings, the extended box set. In terms of quality, uh, I think everybody's agreed that um, technically uh, the set is superb, apart from the controversial uh, green tint, which uh, I've got to say, quite a few people have said to me they can't even see it so if they're lucky enough uh, not to see it they won't notice it and enjoy what is uh, I think guys uh, a, a brilliant package even though I don't really get on with it so let's move on let's uh, let's go to 3D and let's have a, a 3D choice here and I know that uh, both Simon and Steve picked out the Toy Story trilogy now uh, in terms of 2D uh, I'd, I'd have to put my hands up and say one of my all time favourite trilogies out there um, absolutely loved it but in terms of 3D, Steve, uh, what are we missing? Well, um, the thing about Toy Story films is obviously the third one was made for 3D um, when it was released uh, last year. And um, But what they did with the other two is, unlike some things, this isn't a, a conversion. They've actually gone back to the original files and created the sort of the second eye view correctly as you would if you were making animated film for 3D from you know from from initial premise so so these are proper 3D movies and what's amazing watching them I don't know if you agree with me Simon is how much 2D filmmaking because obviously they were designed for 2D originally how, how much stuff flies towards the camera even when yeah. you're making things in 2D you know it, clearly it's just part of 2D filmmaking grammar and so if you if you if you hadn't known that those films were made originally in 2D you'd be going oh that's a gratuitous 3D shot but of course it wasn't it was designed for 2D it was never even intended for 3D so mm. it is interesting when you watch things like that to sort of realize just how how much 2D filmmaking uses things like that to create a sense of depth anyway um, but I, I thought they were fantastic. Um, um, th- I mean, they made surprisingly because they weren't intended for 3D. They made fantastic 3D experiences. And the third one is amazing. Uh, and, and as a trilogy, as the three films together, they really work. I think each one gets better and better, uh, in fact, if anything. Uh, and, they, and they retain a sort of both the humor and, and the emotion that makes them, makes them really, that, that the thing that Pixar generally gets really does really well. Not so much in Cars 2, as Simon's already mentioned. Fantastic 3D, bloody awful film. But uh, these three films are great films, um, really well made, uh, and a great 3D experience. Absolutely, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're almost almost a perfect trilogy. I mean, we just extolled the virtues of Lord of the Rings. Well, Toy Story, completely different vein, of course, but equally as good. Phil, you couldn't get into the characters of Lord of the Rings, but... You can with Toy Story because yeah, it's a kids' film. The, easy, <laughs> it's easy. Yeah, it's absolutely easy. Uh, even though they're they're supposed to be toys, you know, you you side with these characters all the way through the three films, um, and and they run concurrently. You, you they 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 age. What is so good about three is that Andy ages between the first, second, and third. You know, and it, 
their friendships develop over the three films. Even down to the first one, when when you um, the, the opening scenes, uh, the credits of the first one. If if you imagine it, you know you've got um, um, Woody being bounced around the bed and being thrown across the room. Simple things, and in three D, it really comes alive. It's it's brilliant, brilliant uh, for for what is should be you know sort of a convert. It's it's spectacular. Um, yeah. Couldn't fool, couldn't fool. I, I agree. The the opening of the second one with um, um, Buzz Lightyear and, and sort of in the, turned out to be yeah. a game. Uh, you don't remember at the time. That looks yeah. spectacular. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean they, they are brilliant, and and as you say, the fact that they they you know deal with Andy's growing up and the toy sense of being abandoned by him. You know, and we can all relate to that because we've all grown up. We've all we've all had toys when we were kids. You know, you you all discard them in the end, unless you're slightly weird. Um, and and so we can relate to that, which is, I think, why they, they work on an emotional level so well, particularly, I think, for men, actually, so it's, boy, you know, boy toys. So as a as a 3D collection, then I, I take it we're giving them the full thumbs up here. Yeah, definitely. So, so let's move on to the movies. I mean, I guess we're all aware uh, of the movies. I, I guess the vast majority of our listeners will have seen the movies. For me, um, to get the subject off... I think the thing that works best uh, about all three movies is the buddy element, and and that's Buzz and uh, Woody. Um, I think the film's built on on that um, relationship and and the the way that they play off each other. And for me, that's that's the whole uh, essence of the films, with with the side characters obviously given uh, comic relief and so on. But even between the two of them, the the just juxtaposition of a spaceman and a cowboy uh, who shouldn't get on um, and and one who's b- believes he's actually a real person and not a toy. I'm obviously talking about the first film here. Um, I, th- I thought that was, although it was a kid's film, I thought it was very much uh, aimed at an o- older audience, probably an adult audience, and, and lots of adult jokes in there. Yeah, agree, Phil. Uh, in fact, of anything, the first film is very reminiscent to me of Midnight Run, but with uh, toys, obviously. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It, 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 that's why Pixar works so well because they didn't make films for children. They didn't make films for adults. They made films for everybody, and kids could get out of it stuff, and adults could get stuff out of it too. And, and I think that's that's been their appeal, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think Cars Two failed because it was very much skewed towards children, without the sort of um, the adult jokes or the stuff that the parents could enjoy. Um, whereas Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, and particularly 3, actually, towards the end of 3, I was thinking, they're not going to do this, are they? They're not going to kill them. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was genuinely quite surprised at how dark it got towards the end there. Yeah, I mean, it, there's, there are examples of, of using adult humour and, and jokes for the adults that doesn't work, if, and, and I'm pointing the finger at the Shrek films. Um, it, it got far too knowing. Um, pop culture references, weren't there? Yeah, and and that soon became a very tired, cliched uh, way. But but Toy Story keeps it fresh because of the relationships in there. They're also timeless. I don't think that they won't age. Whereas Shrek is already. I saw uh, Shrek one recently just to see what the conversion was like, which was was terrible, by the way. Um, but uh, it's aged quite noticeably in in ten years. Um, whereas whereas I think Toy Story hasn't aged at all. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Toy Story movies, and I thought actually the third one returned the series a little bit to um, the quality of the first one. I'm not saying the second is a bad movie at all. I just thought that the first was inspired, uh, second trod some familiar ground, and the third one had something going for it. 
great ensemble pieces, great animation, lovely stories, the kind of films I don't really want to watch. And yet when I do, I fall hopelessly head over heels in love with them and kind of hate myself for doing so because it's also a damn nice. But you, know, you can't deny it. These, things, these films do cross, cross over the, uh, the generational gap. Um, and I'm a diehard gore fiend and I shouldn't be liking these nicey, nicey, you know, Pixar movies. But I do. I, I embrace the, um, you know, the friendship angle just as much as anybody else does. I thoroughly enjoyed the first one. I didn't... The second one, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, that's a step back. But looking at it now, I don't know why the hell I thought that, because the second one is absolutely magnificent. Third one, a bit with Cass on this. I was a bit deflated by that one. I think the darker side to it, the, uh, the, the, the you know, really on the edge of your seat sort of climax, you know, are they all going to die? Um, I think sort of left me cold a bit. But, you know, as a trilogy... Once again, it's a, it's another, you know, jaw-dropping, you know, all-round experience, and they are just great, great movies. Um, I I never choose to put these on myself, but if I wander in and the kids are going to on, you know, I'm going to find myself sitting down and watching them as well, and laughing along and really enjoying it. Yeah, I can't really add anything to what's been said. They they've got a great kind of heart to them. It's I do think they are quite like a, a, a buddy movie. You know, they're, as Chris said, a, a bit of an ensemble piece. But they, Pixar just somehow managed to capture that little bit of magic that that sometimes other studios just can't quite can't quite get to. Yeah, uh, Chris, I'm going to bring up a point with you. You, you said that you, um, uh, obviously they're nice movies and, and you get into them and you appreciate them, but... Uh, th- at the same time, you have The Incredibles down as one of your all-time favourite movies. Yeah, yeah, but it's a superhero movie. There's a difference. <laughs> In my mind, there's a big difference. Um, I think if I'm going to have to try and qualify this in some way or other, the, the characters in, in The Incredibles are people. They're not toys. They're real people, albeit with superpowers. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's a coin of phrase from it. It's the family dynamic. And... I don't know, I was just completely smitten by it. I thought Incredibles was a great piece of entertainment in its own right, and it was telling a great superhero story at the same time, uh, far better than many other genuine bona fide you know, live-action um, superhero movies. It just did everything really well. There was genuine threat. There was real danger to the kids as well. Because um, you know, on that island, they were, they were going to be machine-gunned by the henchmen. They were going to die. So it was... That had a lot of things going for it, which for me, perhaps a slightly more mature and darker angle to it, which obviously appealed to me. But bear in mind, I'm a massive fan of almost all the Pixar movies. Um, I've not seen Cars 2, I hasten to add. But I kind of appreciated Cars, the first one, where most of the people didn't. Um, And I I, I tend to love most of them. As someone else correctly said, they have an essence of thinking it was Mark who said it. There's a, they have the, the, the knack for finding even the most, the most obscure storylines. Like, look at Up, for instance. Who'd have thought that was going to work? Yeah. But it does. It really gets you. It, it breaks your heart within the first five minutes. How many films do that? And then, and then manages to you know, build you up again and tell you a rollicking good story with lots of really bizarre asides and set pieces, which just shouldn't work. And yet it does. Look at Wally. You know, a very melancholic sort of story, 
with a massive heart and soul, which changes tack halfway through from like this bleak Armageddon world full of dust and loneliness to and you know, a fledgling romance to a, an absolute comic book extravaganza in space. They, they just have this knack for doing it. And Toy Story certainly has all of that, you know, up to the gills and back again. Um, but as I say, I think I, Incredibles really, really does get me. And I, I love Monsters, Inc. as well. Again, but that's horror. It's Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I rescued myself somewhere in the but, midst but of that ramble. There was an important point there, Chris, when, when you mentioned it up, because in the last podcast when we discussed Cars 2, we were on about um, what's on the slate from Pixar, what's coming up. And I think Steve mentioned uh, one of the films, which is Brave, um, and he'd seen the trailer and didn't quite get what the story's going to be about. And I guess you, you discussing that point there about Up, it, it, again, it, when I saw the trailer to that, I was thinking, well, how the hell are they going to make a movie out of that? Yeah, I think that's half the point though, isn't it? You know, they come up with the most wacky, bizarre ideas. They throw together a teaser and a full trailer, which don't really show you what you're going to be getting. And you think, ah, I don't know if I like this or not. But you put your trust in Pixar and they're going to take you on a ride. They're going to tell you a story, and they're going, to, they're going to get you emotionally involved in it. Crucial thing: look at the the sheer amount of animated movies that come out, and how many of them actually engage you. We mentioned Shrek before. The first Shrek, I adore the first Shrek, and it did move me. Uh, everyone's quite rightly said the series then completely just you know nose dived after that. I think, and you didn't care to hoots about them. It was the same old story being retrod. Pop culture references are plenty. They lost the magic that was in the first one. Pixar, barring Cars 2, which I can't call my song because I've not seen it, but all the other ones have hit on that, that sacred, magical ingredient and really works. You know, it's just... I, I, don't know what, I don't know what it is, and, but the Brave, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work all over again. I'm sure of it. Okay, so we're, we're giving uh, Toy Story, the trilogy on 3D, the big thumbs up. So that's uh, the next one on the list. And I guess at this point, we're talking about movie trilogies, the, the one that uh, isn't in anybody's list, uh, quite surprisingly, is the recent Star Wars trilogy. Um, so reasons for that, guys, Steve? Uh, it was a disgraceful release, in my opinion. Uh, it was uh, shoddy, substandard, and money-grabbing. Um, in fact, everything... That we said was fantastic about the Lord of the Rings box set release, i.e., that they put everything in there that was already available um, and, and had great picture and sound, uh, did not apply to the Star Wars box set with shoddy, really, really bad extras. Uh, loads and loads of good stuff missing from other, other releases. Um, and, you know, not great. Uh, picture and sound was okay, but, you know, you could have been better. And frankly, they just took the 2004 Masters. Tarten up a little bit and stuff them out on Blu-ray to maximum return. They knew they were going to sell like a cure for cancer. So why didn't they make an effort? I mean, there's, there's no excuse. When Warner Brothers are prepared to spend a million dollars on a Blu-ray of uh, Ben-Hur doing a full restoration at 8K. I know it's 65 millimeter film, so that's why it was a high resolution. But, uh, you know, a million dollars on that uh, for a film that's going to sell about 10 copies, frankly. Um, when, when, when Lucas is going to make billions off the back of a Blu-ray release of Star Wars and he couldn't be bothered to do it properly. It just makes, I mean, I really have washed my hands of him at this point. That's why it's not on my list. Next. <laughs> um, yeah, but on the not, other hand, it's Star Wars. Nothing I can really add to that. That was, <laughs> that was the most damning comment I've heard so far. Uh, and I totally agree with you as well. Uh, I couldn't not have, I think most of us couldn't, you couldn't not get the Star Wars box set. And my 
today. My son's been watching the original, the prequel trilogy, and I, I didn't even put my head around the door to have a look at them. But, you know, you had to have this in your collection. You had to see what they'd done with it, and you just wanted it on Blu-ray. But, yeah, a complete and utter wasted opportunity. He's got the money. He could easily have made this, you know, a, a treasure trove for the fans who've you know, supplied him with his billions. And he, he, that's a poke in the eye, I think. Great films, very enjoyable. And you want them on Blu-ray. And I do like the sound on them, I hasten to add. But, you know, this was not what it should have been. And because of that, and some other reasons, it, it doesn't make my top five at all. Well, I, I'm afraid that I didn't buy it at all. <laughs> good good uh, for uh, you. Can we go back? We didn't all get this then. <laughs> I refused on general principle. I, I thought that I'd end up caving, but you know, you it's hard to judge whether a certain amount of indignation is just, you know, fan reaction, you know, kicking George Lucas for fun or whether it's warranted. But <laughs> as as soon as I heard about the extra lines in there in uh Return of the Jedi, I I just I couldn't no! feel Exactly. I couldn't feel that I was actually giving George Lucas a penny of my money to do that. I could live with that. It's the other stuff I couldn't handle, really. I mean, Jedi's a rubbish film anyway, so who really cares? But he ruins the end. He walks in it. Actually, Return I found the, the very ending with when Hayden Christensen turns up, if you watch all six in order, that actually pays off, <laughs> bizarrely. Yeah. Get out. No, seriously, <laughs> much, to my, much to my surprise, I was like, oh, we pleased to see him at the very end. <laughs> yeah, jog on. Okay, Kaz? Right, so uh, yeah, Star Wars was just disappointing. It's not going to make the list. There's no way it's going to make the list. For, for starters, the the first three films are so damn flawed, um, and I have no idea why they're the ones that ended up with the most controversial um, video presentation. Really, haven't got a clue about that. I mean, it's one thing, you know, we'd have uh, we'd have spent six months moaning about it if you'd have changed it to a slightly more greenish tint, but um, I think that uh, he, he almost did one step worse with his, I mean, Phantom Menace was just really patchy, uh, I remember it being sporadically excellent, and then really, really dull and soft in alternate scenes, um, and they've never fixed the problems with Attack of the Clones. Um, no, there's no excuses for this one. The amount of money he's making off them, the little things. Why the hell didn't he include the extras from the other discs? I mean, seriously, it's it's um, it's shoddy presentation for, as someone's already said, you know, for for a release which millions and millions of people are going to buy. Uh, and if you look at things like uh, what they did for the Touch of Evil release, which was also on the list, um, I mean, they they worked their magic, pre- presented five different cuts, a host of extra features, you know, polished them all up. They did a really good job. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably going to only sell you know ten, a, a few dozen copies. Whereas um, Star Wars is just raking it in. I guess we'll just have to wait a few years until the 3D version. Or hopefully Lucas dies and then someone else can take over the legacy <laughs> and then with it. Yeah. I think he has. I never thought I'd wish someone to die. Yeah. His neck's going to explode uh, and take him with it, hopefully. And then we can have someone actually do something proper with the Star Wars legacy. He, someone... He's probably created clones by now. <laughs> <laughs> Attack of the clones, seriously. You can have the Lucas clones. So another film that, that featured on a couple of lists was Tron Legacy. 28 years later, uh, they make a sequel. Uh, was it any good, Steve? Uh, personally, no. I, I didn't think it was a particularly good film. Um, I, I found 
but to be honest, let's be honest about this. Tron's not a great film either. I think Tron's just sort of one of those films that if you saw it back when you were early teens in the 82, you know, you kind of have a soft spot for it because it was quite prescient in some ways in terms of its, you know, approach to computers. But um, but it wasn't a great movie. It just just had some kind of, you know, a very um, groundbreaking effects in it with computer animation. And it was ahead of its time in that sense. The sequel, you know, obviously looks and, and sounds incredible in 2D at the disc. You know, it just looks and sounds amazing. Um but I found it to be very empty in terms of story. I didn't care about any of the characters. You know, I couldn't understand why somebody in a computer would age. That didn't make any sense at all. Um, the only thing that was fun was when they when they found um, uh, Mark, Michael Sheen doing an impersonation of Bowie. That was by far and away the high point of the film for me. Otherwise, I didn't enjoy it at all. I, I couldn't make out, because of the production design, everything's black or, or glowing you know, light. And therefore, there's no sense of depth or sense of proportion. Um, so I couldn't really make out anything. That's where the 3D really fell apart. I know they claim it was shot with 3D cameras, but there was no depth to the film at all. No depth to people's faces. Um, the production design didn't lend itself to 3D because black is not a good thing for choosing, you know, showing depth to something. Um, so as a 3D experience, despite the fact that lots of people claim it's amazing, I, I found it monumentally disappointing. Um, uh, and I had been looking forward to it for that respect, that point alone. Um, so I, I, I saw it at the movies, thought it was crap, bought the Blu-ray. Unfortunately, it wasn't the cinema that was messing it up. It really wasn't good 3D to start with. And I think Simon agrees with me on that one. Um, yeah, I don't agree with you, the film. I thought the film's quite good, actually. Um, but I think we'll let Kaz talk about it because he's uh, far more eloquent than I am with his regard to the film because he reviewed the 2D version. With regard to the 3D um, picture, uh, I too found it very, very poor, um, in the fact that there was no real depth to anything, um, and the and the the biggest problem is because it's all black. It's black black with neon lights, um, and they try to give you some sort of false 3D by putting sort of dots in front of the screen um, to just to try and give you some sort of in your face moment and, and give some layering back into the picture. But uh, I don't know. I think for for, for one of the an eighty three D film, it's got to be pretty. Well, I think it's pretty got to be pretty much my worst pick yeah, for the I year totally for, 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 for a native 3D film. It also, it uses the conceit of starting in 2D, and then when they go into the grid, it, it becomes 3D. Um, so obviously, uh, you're wearing the glasses even during the 2D sequences, which means they're not very bright for a kickoff. <laughs> but um, but you know, you, it's, it's, something's not right when you've gone into the 3D segment, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Hang on, is this in 3D?" Uh, yeah. You know, clearly it should be a absolute. You know, it should be like it the Wizard be. of Oz. You know, where you go from sepia into color, and it's an incredible experience. That this didn't work. I, I wasn't suddenly thinking, "Oh my god, I'm in 3D. How amazing!" I'm thinking, "That's the worst 3D I've ever seen." That's not the. <laughs> that's not the. I don't think that's meant to be the reaction you're supposed to be getting from it. But I think they screwed the pooch, frankly, in terms of uh, in terms of the 3D. I don't know who the stereographer was on that film, but he did a poor job. Well, I, I, damn, I thought Tron was a, an excellent experience. It was. Uh, it just totally blew me away. Um, the the way they blend the futuristic visuals, um, stunning futuristic visuals with uh, a perfectly chosen soundtrack. I couldn't think of a, a better experience at the cinema this year um, than Tron. Uh, and I know I only saw the 2D, but I, from all reports, what everyone else is saying, I'm kind of glad I only saw the 2D. Um, it, it did totally blow me away. And I appreciate that there are um, flaws in the story, that it, the characterization isn't quite what it should be, the performances aren't perfect, 
but um, I thought Jeff Bridges was excellent in it, and I really enjoyed what he did with the character in that kind of movie. Um, it wasn't up for damn Oscars, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. it. I gave it a, a surprisingly high rating, not for any particular one element of uh, the movie itself, but for the overall experience, because there's, there's no other word for it with a movie like Tron Legacy. It's not a, it's, it's a movie that's you're built to, that's built for you to get totally immersed in, and that's what worked for me. On on a technical side, a slight aside technically, um, it does something on the 3D disc. I don't know where it does it on the 2D disc. I haven't watched it, um, but it, it does that annoying thing of switching between different aspect ratios depending on certain scenes. Um, so it goes from 2.35 to one to 1.78 to 1 for the IMAX sequences. Now, I, I blame Christopher Nolan for this because he did it on the uh, with The Dark Knight uh, and they did it on The Dark Knight Blu-ray as well. Uh, and it's really, really annoying if you've got a constant height setup, um, unless you can mask. Uh, luckily, I can mask, so I can just go back to the correct ratio. But I think other people, you know, they, they don't have mask capabilities. Suddenly, the image suddenly widens out or opens out above and below their scope screen. And it's just a really annoying little trend that's happened recently, I think. But Dark Knight, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, and now Tron Legacy. And I know that um, uh, Christopher Nolan's shooting Dark Knight Rises in the same way, which is really annoying. Uh, there's a lot just... more of it in that one as well. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, almost yeah. an hour of it, I think, in Dark yeah. Knight. And there's, well, I, I think, think, 40 minutes of it in Mission Impossible. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, Mission, sorry, I forgot about Mission Dark Impossible. Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight Rises. Sorry, sorry. So not to mention it, and it's got me going. <laughs> Uh, he, he the, says, bat, he says, the bat in, and in, the bane come on in, in the interview he says I'm not shooting Dark Knight Rises in 3D because that's a gimmick oh what so shooting in two different aspect ratios isn't a gimmick then is it can't believe he's got the cheek to say that really I, mean, I like I like Christopher Nolan but um, but that's annoying really it's annoying it's okay however Steve as, as you rightly say um, the DVD is 235 all the way through it doesn't have the uh uh, the IMAX scenes in, so it's correctly framed for two three five. So yeah. when I when I watch the Blu-ray, I just mask it off and watch it at yeah, two three five. That's what I do. I do. I also do that with um, Avatar too, which is also framed for two point three five to one, and not one point seven eight to one, which is what the disc was released at. Uh, yeah, um, it, it works for that. It's uh, it's it's yeah, obviously composed for the wider ratio. frame. Plus, right. you know, I always, I always find scope ratios just work better for films for me. I mean, you get it's more cinematic experience all round. So to wrap up on our look back at 2011, we're going to pick up on uh, restorations uh, of old movies, classic movies that are coming to a Blu-ray and making a big difference. And one that was mentioned on the list was Taxi Driver. Uh, so let's go to Mark first. Mark, why did you choose this one? Um, just because it's it's an absolute classic. It's been getting it's been given the treatment that it it really deserves, um, and they've managed to keep it looking. Filmic, it's still, you know, they they haven't really tinkered with the the color scheme too much. They haven't, you know, it doesn't come across like a like a new film. Like they've tried to kind of erase that gritty on the streets look. It, it's there's still grain there. It's still kind of washed out in all the right places. But it's just got far more contrast now. It's you know the detail comes alive and and it's you know it's an absolute classic and deserves to be in everyone's collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that, with Mark. There, it was really Sorry, nice. Was, friend. was he talking to me then? What? Don't you get that? Oh, <laughs> oh dear yeah. God! Oh, Christ, Call yourself fans. I don't believe you, lot. 
I was laughing, but you couldn't hear me. <laughs> I was crying, but you can't see me. <laughs> Thank God you can't see or hear me then. I've actually not seen the Blu-ray of Taxi Driver. I love the movie to bits, and for some reason, it's 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 not in my collection at the well, moment. It should be. It's, yeah, it, you're dead right. It should be. And no, the, the score, a... as well, in Lost yeah, List. Bernard Herrmann, his his final really, score, yeah. really comes alive. It, it feels wide. It's it's kind of sparkling. It, it really, really, you know, they've they've done fantastic work on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with with Mark. I think it's uh, it's it's a it's, they've, they've, it's a beautiful 4K restoration of the original print, uh, restored print, and um, and they've done a fantastic job of maintaining the integrity of the original film, but making it look as good as it's ever looked. Um, it probably didn't look that good back in '76, actually. Um, the only slight not complaint because I understand they could they they tried to find an uncolor timed um, final reel because they they changed they muted the colors in the final reel because there's so much blood to get just to to get. Um, Get through the rating, past the ratings board, the MPAA, um, and unfortunately they couldn't find uh, the original footage that hadn't been you know, color timed to a more muted look. Um, but that's not their fault. They tried their best. It still looks absolutely fantastic and uh, and, and an amazing, uh, yeah, just an absolutely brilliant film. See, I actually quite like that final reel as it is. I think it it almost takes on a a, a bit more of a kind of dreamlike sequence to it. You know, it's it's the moment where a man finally loses his mind. So to me, it kind of, you know, the colour tone actually matches that quite nicely, even if it's even if that's not quite how it should be. I, I still think that 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 works well. You know, it, it doesn't seem to jar at all. Yeah, no, it still it still works. I mean, it's still it's, it, once again, it's it's an incredibly prescient film in terms of that. You know. It, Back in '76, it wasn't as common as it is now for people to, you know, to seek f- fame at any cost, the way that they do these days. And 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 to a certain extent, you know, that's what the film's about, and how people become heroes by accident, um, even when they're doing something quite terrible. Uh, and we live in an age now where that kind of thing happens all the time. And and for that point of view, you know, it's probably more relevant now than it was back in '76. There's nothing to add, mate. You pretty much summed it up there. It is it is a classic movie, without a doubt. Uh, and that shootout is tremendous. Great makeup effects. Um, you know, you'd had Door of the Dead, which obviously showed bullet hits properly. Sam Peckinpah had done it. But there was something a little bit more, I don't know, cause I think it, it, it was urban. It was this thing, this sort of could happen on the streets. You know, it just brought it home with a, with a, with a bullet, didn't it? Um, excellent stuff. The Mohican as well. Just so, <laughs> so cool. Just... I, I, Star, Star Wars, you know, made 1977, but we don't have a pristine restored print of the 77 version of Star Wars available to us, and yet we have a fantastic uh, restored version of Taxi Driver from 76. Uh, and I know that later this year, hopefully, we'll see a restored version of Jaws, uh, which was 1975, of course. Uh, and I know that um, uh, in terms of other big restorations that are coming out, uh, at the end of this month, there's Cleopatra, which is, which is being released. And they've done a big restoration on that. And last year, of course, we had a beautiful restoration of Ben Hur. It looked absolutely stellar. Um, you know, Ten Commandments. Uh, Ten Commandments. Thank you. Yes, um, Vista Vision. So once again, a, a nice big, um, big frame format to to use. I mean, obviously, I tend to find that some of the older movies that were shot on sixty-five mil, like, for example, um, Ben Hur, you know, just look incredible on uh, on Blu-ray because obviously you're dealing with a much bigger frame to start with, uh, and maybe even this year. Although I was thinking, especially it'll probably be the year after, but it'll be next year. 
um, we might get um, Lawrence of Arabia, which again was shot on 65mm and should look unbelievable. Um, well, we've just had Media Nivality as well, the 1962 yeah. Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard version, which I've just, I looked at on the, on the Blu-ray. Now, you might be able to help me out here because I kind of knocked this one down because it had absolutely no grain on it. Now, we know it had 70mm roadshow presentations. This should have been immaculate. Colour-wise, it certainly is. Steve, where's the grain? Should should there not be grain on that? It not looks necessarily. It looks DNR it? to hell and back, as far as I'm concerned, because you've got no fine detail. You've got smudgy faces in the background. Mid to background detail is clearly lacking. Um, Close-ups, yeah, you've you've got pretty pretty good detail there, but again, it's not got that filmic film-like texture, which I would have really assumed would have been there. It it all assumes on whether they use the sixty five mil print for the transfer or whether they use the thirty five mil print for the transfer. Um, I would imagine a sixty five mil it would still have grain structure because it's film. Uh, film has grain structure. Just depends on different stocks have different amounts. So yeah, I, I don't know what the technical details are of the disc. I don't know what the, well, the, the, the same guy filmed Ben Hare at the same time using exactly the same camera techniques. Um, ben Hare and um, Beating a bounty. Now Ben Hare looks utterly jaw-droppingly good. It looks like a film. It looks yeah, it well, beautiful. Warner's did, as I said earlier, Warner's did an 8K resolution uh, transfer of that 65 millimeter print. Well, so, it would appear uh, they haven't done anything remotely similar. Which, which studio? Which studio was uh, Bounty? I can't remember. Was it MG? It was MGM. Yeah. MGM, right? Who are now owned by Warner's? Yeah. They? Yeah. Well, yes, it, they it looks like it looks like the same as the old. I've got the Region One um, special edition disc of this. And it looks to be the same transfer as that. Obviously, the colours pop a hell of a lot more. But you've got some edge enhancements on it. Sorry, I don't mean to do a review of this. Um, but you've got a few other deficiencies there as well. But it just you know, annoys me when you've had, when we have, we've touched upon this before, you've had the immaculate restorations of the likes of Ten Commandments and Ben Hare. And, and this, they seem to have dropped the ball with. Admittedly, it's not a much-loved movie. Uh, and you know, there's true. a lot of reasons why that is. But it's still... You know, it's a it's gorgeously wide, massive, massive, lavish scale production. And, you know, flaws in the narrative aside and the performances, it's a film that begs to be seen, you know, looking resplendent. And the fact that they didn't do that, you know, it, yeah, there are still fans for this movie. And it, it would have deserved it. But I'm just surprised that they didn't do it. Again, I wanted to, I wanted to clear it up, but, you know, should there be grain seen on this? Uh, and you know there is none whatsoever on this image at all, and it doesn't look right to me. Uh, the uh, answer, the answer will if it's filmed on film, the answer will always be that yes, that there will be a green structure there of some some kind. Um, so it sounds like it's been DNR'd or cleaned up um, to remove the green. And and unfortunately for us enthusiasts, uh, when you ask the mass market, um, and film studios have done that and asked the mass market what they expect to see in a Blu-ray, um, there's an awful lot of people that don't like green. And, yeah. the, you know, we could find ourselves finding more and more releases coming out where excessive DNR has been used because uh, with Blu-ray, with the higher definition picture, you're going to see more grain. And people, mass market, mass majority, don't like to see grain. Yeah, it's true. And yet, on the flip side of the coin, you've got, like, some um, very limited releases, like Mysterious Island, that Ray Harryhausen one, which has come out of 3,000 3, copies worldwide. It's limited to just one distributor which is um twilight time i think it's right from screen archives the encode's been done by sony and it looks 
Now, you know, obviously with an anime, uh, stop motion animation movie of this kind, you're going to have the variable looking uh, film. The live action stuff looks incredibly good. It's not messed around with it. It looks glorious. The grain, the film texture, the detail, it's beautiful. And obviously the um, stop motion stuff, you get a lot of different varying um, images for that. Very grainy, you know, it doesn't look the same, obviously, because of the filming techniques used. Now, that was highly limited. Pretty expensive disc, got to say. But, um, you know, they put the effort into that for very limited returns, you would have thought. It didn't go mass market. Uh, they've just done, they've done Fright Night, the original Fright Night as well. At the time of recording, folks, I'm still waiting for my copy to turn up. Um, but by all accounts, it looks tremendous. Again, a film you really wouldn't expect people to go to town on, but they have. So, you know, it, it can be done. Um, and the, some people are prepared to do it for even niche films like this. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's one of these things that comes down to commercial commercialism. And uh, like I say, I mean, there's been surveys done and people, uh, mass market, have, have said they don't like grain. And it, it's going to be one of these things we're going to fight against as enthusiasts. But isn't that that's just the, the big market? I mean, look at um, Criterion. They don't mess with their... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to get the small companies that, that are going to release these collector's editions and, and do it right, and thank God that they're around because, um, you know, as we move forward with 4K transfers and all the rest of it, and we're going to move to 4K in the home in the next few years, um, you know, we want the films as they're intended. But in terms of large commercial organisations... Um, like MGM, Warner, and 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 so on. Some titles are going to spend the money on other titles. Uh, they're going to cut corners. It's somewhat ironic, though, isn't it, that people that are, there are people shooting on on digital at the moment who are adding grain in post production to give <laughs> yeah. things a more film like look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's that's the done thing. Another thing to remember as well is that uh, during the fifties, sixties, and seventies, there was a lot of use of diffusion. Um, Filmmakers uh, 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 had this popular thing at, the, at that time to use diffusion. If you look at um, Star Wars, uh, the desert scenes, there's a lot of diffusion used used there. And, and of course, when you use diffusion, you're softening things and you, you're taking detail out, um, which sometimes uh, get misconstrued on forums as a, a lack of detail or it's a, an upscale or whatever. It's not. It's because the the technical use of diffusion at that that time it's supposed to make things look soft um and it does rub some detail i mean so, it's interesting phil that has mentioned um earlier when he was talking about the rigid the star wars prequels why does menace look so bad i think part of the reason for that is because it was shot on 35 millimeter film which has a bit of grain of course and the other two were shot digitally and in an attempt to make it look more like clones and and sith they've deliberately DNR'd that film excessively to, to, to give it a more digital look. And the reason the clones doesn't look very good is because it was shot on digital cameras in 2000 when the technology was still pretty nascent and, and it's not, you know, it just doesn't have that film-like quality to it. Yeah, and, um, and Menace as well was, the, there was a, a number of scenes in that which used the, few, the, yeah. the Sony F-series camera which was yeah. brand new technology at the time but uh, there's consumer camcorders out now that do a far better job than that camera ever did. Yeah, no, and, and I, think, I think that's an interesting... Um, that Lucas, in, in, his, in his attempt to push the technology in terms of digital filmmaking, uh, I think he was running before he could walk back then. 
because, for example, they shot it at a resolution of 2K. Um, and as you just mentioned, Phil, we are moving with our next, well, we already are at a point where you can buy uh, a Sony 4K projector for the home. So we're going to be moving into 4K within the next couple of years. Uh, as, and and those films were never even made at that resolution, whereas 35mm uh, film is around, what, 4 or 5K, roughly. So, you know, those films are all, going to have to be upscaled to be released on, on a 4K format in the future. So I think Lucas is really stuffed up, frankly, as far as those films go. <laughs> I mean, far as the fact they're not very good anyway. <laughs> Uh, he stuffed up, stuffed up at almost every single level, I think. <laughs> Another good example of the, the digital filmmaking and adding in grain is uh, Miami Vice. Um, the low-light scenes um, in that, uh, there was a lot of people mentioned the, the over-excessive grain. That was actually a fault of the camera. It was it was a digital camera and it was useless in low light and yeah. uh, that's not green, that's actually uh, noise from the camera, you know, so <laughs> there are examples out there where uh, technically things could have been a lot better but we're yeah, way off it. subject <laughs> <laughs> Well, but we're talking about restorations, I mean that's an interesting point that in years to come when they go back to try and restore digital files, uh, what are they going to do? Well obviously I mean there's, there's the development phase that you've just been speaking about there Stephen, I mean Nowadays, we're up to 4K uh, being f used digitally. If a, if a film's made uh, digitally nowadays, it's usually red yeah. or, or an offshoot camera of that. I mean, Sony are coming out with their 4K cameras this year as well. There's been a few films already shot that way. I mean, Social Network's a good example. Social ne Network's a really good example because it was shot in red, but it actually looks like 35mm film yeah, uh, really in terms well of grain structure and so on. So it can be done and it can look really nice. And and to take things full circle back to the beginning of this podcast, of course, at, in December of this year, we'll have the release of The Hobbit Part 1, which is shot on 4K, 4K Red Epics. Um, well, two 4K Red Epics is shot native 3D as well uh, at 48 frames a second. So this is sort of the next stage in, uh, in, in, in filmmaking evolution, I guess. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year. And in terms of uh, films that we want to see coming out, just to wrap up this podcast, uh, 2012 looks like being a big year for film. Um, so, guys, what are we looking forward to in terms of the cinema first, and then we'll talk about discs. So, cinema-wise, what are we looking forward to? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> you've, got, <laughs> you've got The Bath and you've got Bond. Well, that's it. My, my year is done. <laughs> Yeah, I go with Dark Knight Rises, uh, Skyfall, and The Hobbit. I mean, I can't wait for those three. Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar Hoover. It's actually, I think, called just J. Edgar. Well, they couldn't call it Hoover, DiCaprio. could they? <laughs> yeah. With Leonardo DiCaprio. That looks uh, interesting. Um, the Avengers movie, Dark Knight Returns, the Bond movie. Do we have Dark another Dark Knight Rises? This year? I think you'll find. Dark Knight Rises. I, I Dark think going Man. back to Mark just, did Mark just mentioned Sp Spider Man? No, that was me. Oh, sorry, Simon. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely no interest whatsoever. Couldn't care less. How can you reboot something that only got made ten years ago? Yeah, I, I saw the trailer for it the other day, and I thought, eh, this yeah, this looks yeah, like a shot for less. shot remake. Yeah, all over again. That's that that is cynical filmmaking at its worst, in my opinion. <laughs> but aren't they already planning it with Batman? Oh well, probably. Yeah. I mean, I I I totally agree. It is cynical filmmaking, but people go and see these damn things, and. We, you know, we, we can't get around it. I mean, I was shocked when I heard that as soon as Nolan's finished his trilogy, you know, obviously because of the amount of money they're making, they're just going to do more movies. And they're considering just rebooting it. I mean, how yeah, the hell can, can you... It's my turn now to play him. It's, it's, you know, I've waited long enough. 
No, it's disgraceful. In my opinion. Is he going to die at the end of this one? What, Dark Knight Rises? Mm. Rises to heaven. I don't think it's that final. Uh, he's really going to get done in, though, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah, going to be kind of a bad time, I think. <laughs> Tom yeah. Hardy, the screen's greatest you know, thug. <laughs> you see, Bane originally broke Batman's book. Uh, b- broke broke his book? He broke yeah, his broke book. book. Yeah, I can't believe he broke his book. He broke his back in the comics, and Batman was gone from the comics for like a year, and he was traveling around Asia trying to get some kind of freaking therapy for his back, um, probably hanging with Christopher Reeve. And eventually he got fixed, <laughs> and he came back. And he beat up the guy who was replacing him as Batman and killing people yeah. as Batman. Um, they can't do that story, but it would have been a great story to do. Now they've brought Bane in like, a lot more seriously. It's, it's set eight years afterwards, isn't it? After um, the Dark Knight. I mean, basically, we're, yes. we're, just, we're just shooting in the breeze here because we've got no idea what's going to happen. Um, Bane, it's, it's certainly from what I've seen of it. It seems to be taking in a lot of the uh, the world strife at the moment, riots in the streets, um, anti you know commerce and you know greed, you know, big business and all that sort of stuff, and tyrannical um, you know world order. It seems to be anarchy is is, is coming in uh, by way of Bane and his his henchman army. And it's going uh, I, don't know, I don't know where the hell Catwoman's going to fit, fit into this, but obviously I trust Nolan; it's going to work. But um, I got a feeling that. The bat's going to get battered. This is my my first theory was this. The bat gets battered early on by Bane and sits out a fair portion of it with possibly a very bad back and then comes back at the end and the Dark Knight rises and finally takes out Bane. But there's a lot of talk of it. Is it Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, who's a, a bat-obsessed Gotham detective? And a lot of the conjecture seems to be around the fact that maybe this guy is going to have the... The the bat the baton passed to him, um, and become maybe Nightwing or something like that. At the and then that will close out you know Nolan's idea of the trilogy. But either way, you know it does end with this, and I think that's a great 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 way of doing it. You know I, I'm not going to leave this open for something else. It's it's finished with my trilogy. There you go. And you can reinvent it. You can do whatever you want. But I've, I'm going to close this this saga. And I, I hope part of me actually hopes it's done in a very tragic manner as well, because I think it would it would be it would, it would shake them up, it would shake the genre up something chronic. There's a there's a film that I was looking forward to last year that went AWOL, which is Dread. I mean, I know it's Dread, it's, yeah, it's, it's Dread. Yeah, that, well, they yeah. they um they apparently they sat well they fired the director and Alex Garland is now re-editing it and they're doing some more post-production work. It was supposed to come out in September or well at least by Christmas to 2011. So. Uh, and now it's September, I think, this year. So you know that that that's the film I was looking forward to, and and now and it was shot native 3D as well. Um, and uh, now I'm, now alarm bells are ringing. You know when they start pushing films back by a year, you know yeah. something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Prometheus. Yeah, Prometheus. <laughs> uh, basically, what you got Ridley Scott back in Alien territory, um, shot it in 3D. Uh, fantastic cast: Michael Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Demi Rapace. Um, it's. It, I've read apparently what it's about, and it does sound interesting, actually. Yeah, I, uh, I too have read what it's about. And it sounds uh, so quite excited about that. Actually. Incredibly epic, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It sounds quite quite challenging in terms of uh, in terms of the scope of the story, and, and very the way clever it, in the way it's tying everything together. Yeah. And 
the way he's been elusive by saying, well, I, I'm in the same alien universe. Uh, I'm alluding to alien, but, you know, it's not quite an alien film that you think. And everyone goes, oh, what's he on about? But when you look at, see, we're, we're dropping elusive hints now as well. <laughs> uh, it does tie in, doesn't it? Yeah, very, it does sound quite clever. cleverly done. But it's massive scale, and it's very, very ambitious by the sound of things. But it so, should so, look awesome, <laughs> if nothing else. I mean, have you seen that, that, that new poster with, that looks like Liam Neeson's face on it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that 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 could be interesting. It'd be Ridley really Scott's first uh, first use of 3D as well. So it'd be interesting to see what he does with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. interestingly, he said he doesn't want to make 2D films in the future because he's so impressed with what he's found so far with 3D, which I thought was I'll, interesting. I'll be the judge of that. How will you know? I'm sure he's got your number in his phone as well. And he's going to give you a ring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he must be quaking in his boots right now. <laughs> obviously they've done quite a bit of the production at Pinewood and um, that was one of the comments that came out of there while he was uh, while he was filming um, wow. to some of the technical guys which has obviously then been passed on to other people And but that was an interesting comment there's another, um, speaking of 3D sci-fi movies there's uh, Alfonso, Alfonso Cuaron's first film since Children of Men which is called Gravity with uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock um, um which is being shot in 3D. And again, he's a filmmaker that I really love. Um, and so I'm really interested to see what he does with the technology in terms of, because I mean, certainly last year, I think Scorsese showed everyone how to, how to, how to do it right with Hugo. Um, you know, don't be frightened to push things in people's faces. That's what bloody 3D is there for. You know, use it to tell the story. And if that means, you know, poking someone in the eye because it's part of the story, then fine. Don't be frightened to put everything behind the plane of the, you know, the screen because you don't want, because it's bad form. No, just make the damn film the best way you can with the technology that's available to you. Uh, and, and, you know, make a 3D film properly. And that's exactly what he did do with Hugo. And it was fantastic because of it. Expendables 2. Having just watched the uh, director's cut yesterday, might good? be good for a laugh. The, yeah, actually, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, um, the uh, the cast of Defendables Two is unbelievable in terms of every hard man I can think of. Chuck mm. Norris, Chuck <laughs> Norris, uh, uh, John Claude Van Damme. It's got everyone in it. Literally, Arnie? everyone. Yes, Arnie, Bruce Willis, the lot. You've seen that fantastic poster of it of the entire cast all carrying guns and shooting away one of these big collage pictures look in the middle of it it's you've got chuck norris it's like just out of the rest home hasn't got a clue where he is or what he's doing i've got a gun in my hands and a baseball cap on but hey where's my medication honestly it's hysterical the only other one i'd I'd like to mention uh, another 3d film just because i I love the original quite so much is jack the giant killer which i think might be great fun i saw the trailer for that last night and thought Mm. Couldn't care really? I enjoyed the the original um, from Christ. Oh, you'd have to help me out here, Chris. When was that? That's a while ago. 1950. Yeah, I was 56. 58, 57, 56, something like that. A long, long time ago. Um, just a great, great fun film. You know, I just I have, I've got a real soft spot for it. You know, action adventure yarn in, in the Harry House and Vane. I don't know whether or not the remake is going to be of any value whatsoever but it's something that i'm quite interested in and that was the point of this conversation was it not true <laughs> and i guess we can't finish without touching on bond is this the last one with uh daniel craig well it all depends doesn't it how good it is how much money it makes and if he wants to do any more they certainly wouldn't ditch him straight away 
yeah, the the guy the guy can act and he likes to do other movies as well. Okay, in, in the last couple of years he's been forced to because because of the the, uh, the Bond hiatus, but uh, <laughs> I could be the Bond legacy and the Bond hiatus. Uh, have we got have we got the Bond legacy next year as well? Yeah, apparently. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you mean yeah. this year? Don't you mean this year? This, this year. year. This year. Um, Skyfall yeah. certainly got an, an interesting pedigree. You, you mean you've got um, Sam Mendes directing, you've got uh, Ray Fiennes, and um, um, who's the Spanish actor? Who's his name? Uh, Xavier Bardem. Yes, Javier Javier Bardem. Oh, is that uh, how you pronounce it? Javier Bardem. Yeah. Uh, along with obviously Judy Dench and, and Daniel Craig, and I think they're bringing Q into it. And, and Miss uh, Money Penny. Penny. Yeah, Miss Money Penny. <laughs> so it's certainly, uh, and it's got nothing to do with the previous two films. So for those of you who perhaps didn't like the whole idea of a reboot, you could ignore the previous two, and this is the one that comes after Die Another Day. <laughs> Have you seen um, Daniel Craig uh, came out and said that he's mostly to blame for the reason why Quantum of Solace was uh, so disastrously received, because him and uh, is it Mark Forster, who was the director, yeah. joined the writer's strike. Because you can't hire a writer to to do any work on it, that him and the director had to just creatively finish the movie. I.e., they wrote it in the absence of a proper screenwriter, uh, and they were basically just making up as he went along. And they thought the easiest thing to do was to tie it more and more directly into the first movie, Casino Royale. Uh, and the original idea it wasn't meant to be anywhere near as closely tied, but that's just the way it ended up because it, in, in their hands they couldn't find another way out of it. So. I kind of admire the guy for that because whether it's true or not, you know, he's taking it on the chin. Look, the last one wasn't that successful. A lot of fans didn't like it, but I'm to blame. You know, he's, not trying, to, a, he's not trying to pass the ball on to someone else. So I, I, I admire him for that. And the problem with I that still film, think he's a wonderful Chris, Bond. Yeah. The problem with that film, Chris, was it's bloody unwatchable. It's just yeah. too fast well, they, cutted, too much fast editing, too much shaky cam. I mean, you couldn't tell what the hell was going on. They tried on to be born, didn't they? And it yeah. just failed abysmally. I still like the movie a lot. I still enjoy watching it. But, yeah, the points you just raised are exceptionally valid. And it, 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 from a technical point of view and a, and a viewer enjoyment point of view, it's a bit of a disaster. Okay, so we're moving on to our feature-length podcast here. <laughs> we need to wrap <laughs> it up. Um, so just to finish off and to be very quick and brief, uh, what films are we looking forward to coming on Blu-ray this year? Or what films do we think are going to come along on Blu-ray this year. And I've got to say, there's only one sort of real film I'm desperate to see on Blu-ray, and that is Jaws. No one's going to argue with that. Uh, possibly the greatest greatest movie ever made, Jaws. Absolute cinematic perfection. And Spielberg behind this on the Blu-ray, it's not, it's not, going, to, it's not going to fail, is it? He won't let us stand on this one, surely to God. Due out uh, when? Is it supposed to be August, is it? I, I don't know, I just know this year sometime, so... Yeah, because we're, we're getting ET as well at some point, aren't we? And he's he's already said that he's going to go back on the guns, what he did with the special edition and remove all the changes that he made. Which excellent, yeah, in a excellent, of slightly veiled criticism of Lucas, wasn't it? Really, that he thought that was a bad idea. Yeah, and yeah. just leave it as it is. Yeah, that that was a great interview. I I, I like to see the honesty there, um, where it, where he turned around and said, "Look, I made a mistake. I'm going to go back and and put it back to how it should be." Brilliant. Yeah, I've got nothing, nothing but respect for Spielberg. I think he's, you know, he is a the greatest filmmaker of his generation, and B, I think he's also, you know, got a degree of integrity about him. And don't mess with Jaws. Leave it as it is. And I think sixty-two was it sixty-two that. Uh, so I think it might we might well get Lawrence of Arabia this year as well, um, hopefully, because that should look absolutely. You know, also, I know Sony been working on that for a long time in terms of a full restoration, sixty-five millimeter print. So, uh, well, fingers crossed there. 
there's been rumours, uh, just speculation on the Universal listing about um, all the old Universal horrors coming out as well, the back end of the year. My God, I would give anything for all of those. Just Universal, though, you know, they, they can muck things up a bit. But hopefully, hopefully, you know, this happens. I mean, they've already cleaned up the movies, the majority of them anyway, and they, they've given them great standard releases, standard DVD releases. So hopefully this actually comes to pass. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, Criterion releasing Last Temptation of Christ in March. It, it's um, got to be one of my favourite uh, Scorsese movies. And, um, you know, they, they did a good job with the Criterion DVD, and I, I can't imagine that the, the Blu-ray is going to be anything less than impressive. So I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to that. I know it's a little bit more low-key than everything else, so to raise the bar, you know, I'm, I'm also looking forward to, like, potentially uh, a decent release of the Lethal Weapon series. I know that we've had like a substandard UK one, but I, I think that they're going to have to pull pull the stops out and give like, a special edition ninja set. And probably, which is ironic considering I'm reviewing it at the moment, they'll probably do a Mission Impossible quadrilogy uh, and give them new remastered video transfers, which recently released set does not have. Cass, I'm sure you're looking forward to Drive as well. Oh, God, yeah. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, January. That's, that's this month. But <laughs> it's, not the, uh, it's not the full bells and whistles edition. He's already said he's not going to release that until um, 2013. Yeah, yeah. Of course I'm looking forward to it. Not, not that that's like a huge thing, but it's always a bit of a disappointment, a bit of an anticlimax when you hear that there's loads of stuff that a director is going to put onto a release, and then around the time of the release, you hear actually he's not going to do it until a year later. So um, you know, I'm it's sure that'll be impressive. Just teasing as well. you, isn't it? But you know, it's uh, it's a bit disappointing that you told us about all the good stuff you're going to give us, you're going to make us wait another year for it. But hopefully by then, you know, Drive Two. You never know. That is that is one sequel which. Uh, I, w- I would have no problems with endorsing because I can imagine if they brought everybody back on board, it would just be just as impressive. And if they don't make it, it'd drive you mad, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'll never know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, it is a feature-length podcast. Uh, we have gone well over time, folks, but hopefully uh, the conversation uh, has ke- kept you interested. Just to remind you that podcasts upcoming, uh, we've got the Home Cinema podcast, which is coming from CES on the 21st of January, and the return of the podcast Extra on the 28th of January. So all I need to do now is thank the guys for their participation this evening. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. And don't forget, we'll be back again on the 7th of February for another Movies Podcast. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.